Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I am joined, as always, by TLS commissioning editor, culture guru, and surprisingly northern Thea Lena Dutsi. I'm changing that each week, you see. Uh, is this because last week I realised you were northern and you don't you don't sound it? I'll move on. It's going to get longer and longer. It is, it is going to get longer. I'm already <laughs> trying to think of what's going to happen next week. Each week we will be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show this week, the very cheery subject of death. Thomas Meany has reviewed a new cultural history of mortal remains called The Work of the Dead. It investigates no less than what death means to us here in the West. It also has the most deftly lugubrious introduction to any piece I've <laughs> seen in the TLS and he will join us to explain more. Uh, speaking of death, we'll be looking at the disgraceful case of the state-sponsored killing of Alexander Litvinenko on the streets of Britain. Two books make the argument against the murderous man who runs Russia, Vladimir Putin. Amy Knight has reviewed them and will be talking to us. And we shall end with something more proudly within the Russian tradition, the life of the genius that was Vladimir Nabokov. Edmund White has written a piece about Pale Fire, Nabokov's great gay comic novel, as he calls it, and will join us from New York to tell us more about it. He'll end the show by reading from the beginning of that wonderful book. So on to the subject of death. I mean, here is the quote the beginning of Thomas Meany's review. A few years ago, I entered a morbid phase and started subscribing to the in-house trade journals of the American funeral industry. A fine introduction from a very fine review by Thomas Meany of The Work of the Dead, A Cultural History of Mortal Remains by Thomas Lacour. The book and the review reflects on the place that death holds in our lives and how that has changed over the course of human history. Thomas Meany joins Thea and me now. Thomas, you say uh, in what's a really very, very, very good and interesting review, the West has escaped the tyranny that the dead long held over the living. Uh, I was interested, what makes you think that, other than your own study of the trade journals of the American funeral industry, of course? How do you think things have changed over the last few years? I think I got that idea of, you know, walking around a, um, a massive cemetery in Brooklyn and just seeing how how important cemeteries and and how present they were in American life, but also in, in Western life more generally. And um, and I started thinking, you know, how, how rare it is that one sees dead bodies, that one witnesses the death of someone, you know, in a, in a, in a sick bed or convalescing. And so I, so I thought it seems that death has somehow been um, 
pushed out of view in a way. The sort of sterility of modern life. I think that I kind of thought that when I was reading your piece, in that all of sort of the complexities of life and therefore death, the kind of uncomfortableness of it, the sort of sights and smells of the world. Generally, uh, as modernity progresses, we're sort of cleaning them up, and maybe death is right. the place where we clean it up the most. Yeah, um, there's a wonderful passage in. Um in a John Berger novel um, called Pig Earth, where he has this scene of a, of a peasant woman in France who every night before she goes to bed, she, she actually arranges her room and lays out her, her clothing and everything like that so that it will be easier for her, for her sons to sort of take her body and take it to, to be buried. And I thought, you know, I mean, he was romanticizing this uh, peasant uh, wisdom a little bit, but I thought, you know, you just can't really imagine people in the modern West really thinking that way. And, um, it's interesting you say that, Tom. Did you quote in the piece um, something from Robert Poe Harrison, which says, to be human means above all to bury. And that's yeah. kind of it's an intrinsic part of human life. But I, I suspect that isn't true anymore, is it? No, not at all. I mean, it, as I say in the piece, you look at these kind of hilariously um, matter-of-fact trade journals of the American funeral industry, and they, you know, they indicate pretty clearly that the trend is moving away from burial to other types of dispersal of, of human remains. Um, and that's what Lecure's book is really about. It's about what you do with the, with the mortal remains. And he has some really interesting things to say about that, because um, he's saying that death is something that, that human beings will always have to deal with mortal remains, that there's no getting away from it, so that the Diogenes line that, you know, my corpse means nothing to me is just is is something that Lacour rejects, and I think rightfully so. But at the same time, our way of dealing with those remains kind of has to constantly be updated and renewed. And so what Lacour is dealing with is sort of the dizzying acceleration of that just in the past few decades, you know. I'm, um, with, I'm with Diogenes, actually. I don't know what you think there, but I, I don't. I genuinely feel I do not care at all what happens to my body when I die. Well, I just don't think it matters. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with that as well, but I do... I do think that Diogenes, the Diogenes line misses the vital point that the funeral and what happens to the body isn't so much about the person who, who's dead, it's about the people who are left behind, it's part of the process. And to take that away from people, to, you know, say, yes, let my, my body go to the dogs, neglects all those who are left behind. So you can do what you want with my body as long as my, my family and friends are happy with it and get something out no, of it. No, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think you're both right. I mean, I think that, you know, you can... You can think all you want to think about your own body but you know it's amazing though how Stig's type of request just goes unheeded it's mm. How they go unheeded by by the people who remain. I've actually um, had this conversation. You know, I've got young kids. That I mean, I've had a conversation with my seven year old about this, and she says, so what, "What happens when you you die?" And I, like, I just don't care. Just to do whatever's easiest. And uh, she's because the kids kind of are obsessed with death very often, but uh, and they're obsessed yeah. with the notion of ritual around it, which mm -hmm. is why you know one of the things I do with my kids, and I sound like a terrible dad here, but you, when you go out on holiday you're into the countryside you go to a church and you look at the graves you you re find the oldest person in a graveyard yeah. that's is that what the books of you know there is this sort of nagging return to the ritual somewhere yeah um it sounds like Stig, you've just burdened your children with um <laughs> um sort of incredible amounts of indecision and and um and infighting but um, it's a freudian um, nightmare i've basically <laughs> created a freudian nightmare for kids i can i can I, I, <laughs> exactly Exactly. You know, he, he's sort of written two books in a way. I mean, one is one is a very historically adept story about the decline of, of cemeteries, or, or rather the rise of cemeteries, and then their decline, which, which we can say more about. But his other story is sort of 
how to say this, like he exposes himself to a, to a sort of vulnerability pretty courageously. I mean, he basically says, I'm a historian, but I have this nagging impulse that there's something sort of trans-historical about this subject that I've just take, taken on. So yes, yeah, so there is a sort of nagging return. But then but then you start thinking about his subject a little bit more, and, and you start thinking, well, you know, th- there's a lot of ways in which, in which we communicate with the dead, not just by reading their gravestones, but I mean, you know, think of the TLS itself, right? I mean, Outside of the fiction section and the freelances, I mean, it's mostly pieces about dead people yeah, or their true. books. Yeah, and in a way, the whole Times Literary Supplement is a conduit for 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 communicating with the dead, or rather, sort of trying to read their communications, you know, in some sort of more honorable or accurate way. And that's true of the canon generally, isn't it? The, the Western canon yeah. or any yeah. canon is, yeah. is is the dead reaching out to the living. Yeah, and we just don't think about it that way often. But That's yeah. an important yeah. point that you make, in fact, or in fact, um, Lecure makes about the living needing the dead more than the dead need the living. And when it comes to literature, that's not necessarily true, because, of course, the dead need the living to... To preserve, or at least you know, to determine their their legacy, to buy their books, to negotiate their place in the canon. Whether anything is left behind, then to feel that need, or whether it's purely a, like a projection of of the living, is perhaps a question for another time. But it does make one think long and hard about the decisions made by those who are entrusted with the legacy. You know, the estate. So, uh, be it Kafka or, or Nabokov. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's right at the heart of the of the whole problem. I mean, you know, where the balance lies, because. Um, you know, you can think of cultures where the dead weigh really heavily, and you can think of cultures where the were moments in historical time when the when the living seem to be somehow privileged. But that sort of um, commerce, I suppose, or, or communication between the living and the dead is something that um, that Lacour talks about. But also, this writer Robert Poe Harrison, another another academic in California, has written a book about the dominion of the dead, which which sort of takes that type of communication or commerce as the main subject. Um, well, would, would, really would, would we be healthier? I wonder. Is a conclusion of this if we could shrug off death if actually if we with diogenes our bodies were thrown to the yeah. dogs and our families didn't care about it if we focus yeah. more in the moment than we did on the the writings of dead white men throughout history if we could shrug that off the weight yeah. of the dead would, would that make us healthier or sort of less civilized well see that's a that's a wonderful question because i think that you know when i think of this as an american i think that there's been a there's been a strain in american art and american culture that has really strenuously tried to do that, tried to shrug that off. I mean, if you think about something like Matthew Brady's photographs, you know, of the, of the Civil War dead, you know, those incredible sort of matter-of-fact daguerreotypes or photos uh, of, um, of, of Civil War, you know, he's sort of saying, like, look, this is just a dead body, and it's nothing really much more than that. And I think that any culture that sort of... I think that there's a lot to be said, as you seem to be suggesting, you know, for, for doing that. I mean, there is something liberating about it. You find it in certain American poets that celebrates the radical newness of, of not having to pay endless attention and give endless um, mental energy over to the ancestors. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Tom's going to have to leave it there, but it's, a, it's, it's such an interesting piece and it's a subject that is almost almost every part of literature and talking about literature mm-hmm. takes you to this question at some point or another is what's the meaning of of how we treat the dead and how we look backwards rather than forwards it's a it's a lovely piece uh, thank you so much for joining us thank you very much for having thanks me. thomas it's amazing actually Theo. we the second of these podcasts we were talking about history with tom holland and there's that book we were talking about uh, david rife's book in praise of forgetting uh, and it's a review by hugh strawn it. it was talking about the problems when you fetishize memory when you create those poppy monuments because mm-hmm. You never actually jettison the past Mm. and you ignore the nuance of the past in favour of creating a myth. Mm. And it's kind of what 
what we were just talking about there, the, the, the risk of dwelling too much on, on the dead. Yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between, you know, monuments like the poppy monuments that you're talking about and families and the, a death within a family. So I, I think that there's a, there has to be a balance between glossing over life and, you know, raising it up as something that it perhaps never was and remembering. So I think I think that the function of a funeral, and I'm not talking huge state funerals or, or anything like that, but I think that a funeral and, and the, the process of putting things together and working out what happens with a body, whether it's cremated or whatever, is a really important process for a family and friends to come together and, and negotiate and think about each other rather than the person who's gone, because they're gone. Yeah, I kind of get that in theory. I just, I, I just wonder whether in practice, I, I, I quite ag- agree with that in the end. I, I think, think, I think it should be a short, a short process, yeah. but I think it's a necessary part of the grieving process. Yeah. I think, I think you know, Thomas Muni's piece mentions how in America you can now arrange for a body to be cremated without even, you know, talking to someone, let alone seeing them. You can do it all by a series of clicks, as though you were just, you know, booking a table online for yeah. a restaurant. I find that quite appealing. Is, it's it's just it's it's the natural it does because it's a sort of natural end point for kind of i don't know capitalist society where it's all about efficiency and maximizing space space and and all of that and and i understand that that's important but i think you're curtailing if you're curtailing a huge process of understanding and 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 stuff to just a matter of clicks and we also talk talk about the over sterilizing part of the world which i do kind of sympathize with that actually kind of death in all its kind of grimness and you know the sort of life forces sort of dissipating and all of that if you ignore that existence you kind of ignore the sort of carnality of 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 being alive yeah and you can't over sterilize or you shouldn't over sterilize yeah i'm also last point i'm also really fascinated about what's going to happen in the future with especially with island nations like this one in terms of space and at some point someone is going to have to do something or something is going to have to become a law when it comes to disposing of bodies or something because there's a finite amount of space and i think in victorian times i certainly remember reading this that they they went through periods of very clearing out graveyards and sort of piling all the bones into one one big grave and Mm -hmm. then start starting again which would be an interesting policy for someone to have to try and begin now yeah it's an an endlessly interesting subject To a country now where death comes regularly at the hands of those in the highest positions of state, Russia. Amy Knight has reviewed two books, The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep by David Satter and A Very Expensive Poison by Luke Harding that tell us of the astonishing level of criminality leading all the way to the top and President Putin. Her review tells of the shocking apartment bombings of September 1999 in which 300 people were killed in three different cities. They were attributed to the Chechen rebels and used as part of the propaganda war against that state. As Satter's book makes clear, though, the explosives used came from one factory controlled by the FSB, the successor agency to the KGB. The man who is Prime Minister at the time of the bombings won Vladimir Putin. He also remains the prime suspect as the man who authorised the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, poisoned by polonium by Russian agents on the streets of Britain. Amy joins Thea and me now. Uh, Amy, should we start with the bombings from 1999? From what you know and, and, and your reading here as well, is it pretty clear now that they were authorised and performed with the connivance of the Russian state? In, in my opinion, it's clear. I mean, this is still a matter of controversy. 
But uh, I know that journalists other than David Satter have really done uh, extensive research, both Russian investigative journalists and Westerners. John Dunlop, for example, at Stanford, wrote a book about the bombings, which I actually reviewed. So there is a lot of evidence whether one can actually point directly at Putin, who was the prime minister of Russia at that time in September 1999. No one can say conclusively because there just isn't a smoking gun. But I would say that the circumstantial evidence makes a very, very strong case that Putin ordered the bombings. And why would he have done that? Well, when he became prime minister in August of 1999, I believe it was, he had been head of the FSB, the successor to the KGB. But he was basically uh, an obscure figure to most Russians. The people in the Kremlin, those surrounding President Yeltsin, the so-called family, which included Boris Berezovsky, mm. they needed somebody to take over for Yeltsin because he was failing. He wasn't going to win the elections in 2000. So they decided upon Putin and really kind of picked him out of obscurity. He needed some popular support if he was going to participate in this, uh, eventually, uh, the election campaign. So the uh, bombings were a way to justify moving the Russians, launching a second war in Chechnya, and to sort of catapult uh, Putin onto center stage as the strong man who would lead this effort to get back at the Chechen terrorists. The bombings were, were blamed on Chechens, by the way. The other story that you, you write about in, in, in this review, which is one much closer to home here, is the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. What are the key facts of that? I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will be aware of the story, but just in your words, what's the, what's the, what are the key sort of elements of the story to you about the murder of, of Litvinenko? Uh, Litvinenko was clearly viewed as a traitor by the Kremlin. And once he left, he had already had sort of a falling out with Putin because he had appeared in 1998 at a press conference when he was still working for the FSB. He had appeared at a press conference and uh, sort of denounced what the KGB was up to, or the FSB, pardon me. So Mr. Putin was not favorably inclined to Litvinenko. He was put in prison twice, and he finally uh, escaped the country and gained asylum in Britain. But he continued to criticize uh, Mr. Putin after he became president, after Putin became president, in the most vociferous terms. He was in just an constantly writing articles about uh, Putin, and he also wrote a book about the 1999 bombings called Blowing Up Russia, in which he tied Putin to the bombings. So he had not endeared himself uh, with the Kremlin, and he uh, basically was a marked man. We know that they had his photograph. The internal police used his photograph for um, target practice. And there were several uh, signs and messages that he was he was going to be eliminated. So uh, unfortunately, he was not able to uh, protect himself. And these two gentlemen, two Russian hired uh, thugs, really, 
uh, Lugavoy and Koftun uh, came over to London with polonium-210 and they put it in his tea. Isn't this an extraordinary way, Amy, that, I mean, the whole story becomes very hard to, to, to deal with when you go into the detail of it, but isn't that an extraordinarily exuberant and attention-seeking way to eliminate someone as a personal enemy of Putin? It, it, it doesn't seem to be particularly good policy. Well, you know, actually, polonium-210 is an ideal poison in certain ways, because first of all, it can't be detected when being, it doesn't give off the same radiation that other uh, radioactive substances do. Uh, The killers were able, actually, on at least two occasions, to bring polonium through customs in London. So it's something that's very difficult to detect. Also, if they had, uh, if the killers had given Litvinenko the correct dosage, he would have ideally died immediately or within a day or two. And no one would have ever discovered that he had died from polonium-210. It was only because they did not give him enough and they underestimated how healthy he was. He was a very healthy man, jogged every day, didn't, didn't drink or smoke. So in the uh, 20 or so odd days that it took him to die, they finally managed on the last day of his, uh, that he lived, the doctors finally managed to figure out what the substance was. But if he had died earlier, then this would have been a perfect solution to the Litvinenko problem. That's, that's how interesting. And, and there's another aspect which you refer to in your piece, which is, again, this question of how personal this was for Putin, because people are tre- treacherous to their country. There's a long history of defections uh, and the like from the KGB and presumably its successor bodies, which do not lead to people being hit on the streets of another country. Which again, and there's a suggestion that he referred to, uh, Litvinenko had written about Putin as, a, as an alleged paedophile. Uh, because presumably merely being a traitor to your country doesn't warrant being assassinated, or well, there's not a, such a long history of that. It does suggest there must be something more to it than, than simple, uh, simply that. Yes, precisely, and, th- and that really was my point. Now, of course, it's, it's complicated because of the timeline. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, Litvinenko had already been declared a traitor, and uh, they were using his picture for target practice. And there was a, actually a bombing outside his home a couple of years before he was actually killed. They were threatening him. But I, my argument is basically it was a, 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 there were a number of th- reasons why they wanted to eliminate him. But the sort of uh, incident, in my opinion, that pushed the Kremlin to take that final move was his article in the Chechen Press, which is a, uh, an online uh, press that he wrote for quite a bit, in which he uh, charged that Putin was a pedophile. And of course, we are, and it's not a claim that we, we can make with any authority. It may well have no basis, as you say, in the piece. But in some ways, the, the truth or otherwise doesn't. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com matter it's the fact that he made this claim a personal claim about putin yes precisely where does this leave our relations with with russia in your view amy because an interesting question i think that, that for the west for both the uk uh, and the us is, is russia a potential valuable ally against is whose bad behavior we therefore have to overlook and to some extent a nation we have to appease or are they what amounts to a large and dangerous rogue state run by a warmongering, uh, quite violent, quite unstable man who has uh, successfully uh, got parts of the Ukraine uh, may have his eyes on other states within Eastern Europe. Are, are they a threat or are they uh, an ally whose bad behaviour we have to stomach? Well, I definitely would say uh, I would characterize the Russian political regime as you just did. They are, uh, they are a threat. The domestic policies of Mr. Putin are becoming more and more oppressive, I would say, repressive, excuse me. He is really clamping down on uh, freedom of the press. The rhetoric that uh, emanates from the Kremlin is xenophobic, anti-Western, and of course, their their foreign policy is is extremely aggressive. And it's not just Ukraine. It's not just uh, Crimea. The, or well, Crimea is part was part of Ukraine, but it's also their increasingly threatening posture towards NATO countries. You know, sort of flying too low over some of these countries, and their submarines have been coming in too close. And they're just very. Uh, the regime now is very bellicose. And I don't think uh, that the West should overlook these political murders and these killings in the interest of some sort of cooperation with Russia, because they're, they're not even cooperating with the United States and the West in Syria. I mean, they've been propping up uh, the Assad regime for a number of years. It's by no means clear that they're, that they're useful allies that we can cooperate with to fight against ISIS. 
I think they're very unreliable, and it's really important that we in the West keep our eyes open about this. The Litvinenko inquiry was uh, really a, a very good example of the West calling a spade a spade and standing up to Russia. I don't know how much, uh, how much effect it's going to have over Russia's behavior. It doesn't look like it really had the, uh, uh, any kind of a positive effect. But nonetheless, I think it's an important, it was an important signal. Uh, Amy, that's a very good way of leaving it. The headline actually on your piece is getting away with murder. Uh, and that is the, what we're talking about, the, the, the extent to which we are willing for a state like Russia to behave in this way and, and not do enough to, to stop it. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Amy. It's terrifying theory, really, isn't it, when you, when you look at it all? Mm. I always think that it also makes Trump more dangerous. Trump is a man who, A, doesn't believe in NATO, and B, believes he can be friends with Putin. Yeah. And so you have this figure in Russia behaving like this. Imagine if you throw in a figure like Trump in America. It doesn't really bear thinking about it. No, it doesn't. I think the comparison between Putin and, and Trump, is a, it's a tricky one. It plays down quite quite how kind of dangerous Putin is. And whereas Trump, if he got into power... He, all of so many things that he says he wants to do, he wouldn't be able to do, and yeah. then he would, you know, four years from now he'd he'd face re-election, and and he probably wouldn't get it. Whereas Putin has already done all of that dismantling that he, that he needs to do. He's already bought all of the loyalties and eliminated, well, el- as we see, eliminated all the opposition. There's very little standing in his way of whatever his plans are. And I, I just then, when when I was listening to Amy, I, I I wanted to interrupt, but there was no real way of doing it without sounding slightly hysterical. Just to say, you know, where do you see this ending? Where where are we headed here? And that's my point. Isn't so much that Trump is like Putin or Putin is like Trump. Is imagine Trump as part mm. of the factors for dealing with Putin. Yeah. And he's a person who doesn't believe in NATO. He said mm. he wouldn't back NATO countries. So if Putin were to make advances in some of those countries, he wouldn't do anything. And secondly, he says Putin is a guy he can do business with. Yeah. Uh, and so that, to me, becomes terrifying. Not that they're, they're similar, because like you say, the difference between the United States and Russia is is, is And is, yet, yeah, is that's, that's not to say that we shouldn't be, you know, dutifully and diligently underlining the similarities between the two. There was a piece by... Masha Gessen recently in which she said that the biggest one of the biggest failings of of ours is to fail to be able to imagine so you know Trump won't we can't imagine that Trump will get in get in therefore we we can't prepare for it and that's exactly what happened over here you know in a much less dramatic scale when you think about it with with Brexit and things like that we couldn't imagine how it might be true of Putin as well we can't imagine Putin going in to an Eastern European country Mm. under false pretenses Mm. but we probably couldn't imagine Putin knocking down a plane from the sky mm. because he wanted to have an act of war. We can't imagine him taking over Crimea, but it happened. Mm. And then once it happens, what you then do with it is it becomes a big problem. Yeah, and you wouldn't obviously want Trump to be making that decision. Uh, that is indeed a terrifying point. From Russia's most pernicious export to one of its greatest, Vladimir Nabokov. This week we have two pieces about Nabokov running in the paper. The first is by Galia Dement and the second is by the wonderful Edmund White. White has written a piece in which he re-examines Pale Fire, regarding it as the great gay comic novel. To tell us more about that interpretation, Edmund joins Stig and me now. Hi. It's very kind of you to do this, and thank you for the, for the piece. Alan Jenkins said to me that you, you sent it to us quite a while ago, so it might be a shock that it's going in the paper. Well, I'm pleased it is. I, I, I thought it read very well. Alan must have edited it very well. <laughs> We've got another piece from uh, a, a Nabokov scholar who talks about Nabokov having epilepsy. Oh, 
I didn't know about that. So mm, we we've have, got a fine scheme. Yeah, so it's two things to get to. It's, it's you and Galia Dementanem is writing about Nabokov having epilepsy. And another piece is about Nicholas Nabokov, the cousin, uh, and whether or not he was in the CIA. So the whole paper is going to have an, it has a Nabokov cover and has a Nabokov theme. I knew Nicholas Nabokov slightly, and he and his widow is a very good friend of mine. And yes, he was in the CIA in the sense that the Americans were trying to uh, foster a non-communist left in Europe. Yeah, and he was he was he he ran something called the CCF, which is yeah, the but, Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was a CIA front, wasn't it? Yeah, but I mean, no more than. <laughs> Spender's magazine was, you know. Indeed. But actually, we, we have a guy writing about it, Richard Taruskin, who's a sort of um, expert. He's, he thinks that Nicholas Nabokov didn't know. Was well, the he, point. he just didn't ask the he didn't, key yeah, question. He didn't want to know and therefore never asked. Well, I think that's possible. And I think that the truth is that white Russians uh, wanted to see the development of a non-communist left in, in, in Europe. Anyway, certainly Nicholas arranged all those concerts. You know, he was a composer. And well, anyway. Yeah. Well, anyway, we, we have a piece about him. And also, like I said, one by Galia Dement about uh, Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov being like his cousin Nicholas, who was an epileptic, and like Dostoevsky, who was an epileptic. And her, her theory is that Nabokov never wanted to be associated with Dostoevsky in any way and therefore kept quiet about his epilepsy because he didn't want to really be placed into that same category. He hated Dostoevsky. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's get to, to your piece. It's, it's a it's a it's a brilliant piece, and it's worth pointing out that Nabokov regarded you as you 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 say in the piece as his favourite American writer, uh, and you've looked at Pale Fire, and you call it Nabokov's great gay comic novel, which I think is uh, is an interesting way of looking at it. What made you look at Pale Fire again, Edmund, and and what did you make of it when you returned to it? I'm writing a book about a life of reading, so I, I decided to reread several books that, of my youth. What struck me right away was that Pale Fire seemed so, so tremendously gay in, a, in all the ways that I cite in the article, and nobody ever talks about it that way. Or, I mean, people admit maybe that Kenbo is gay, but his hilarious riffs on all these pretty boys and all of his various boyfriends and and even the costumes that an imaginary figure keeps shedding one after another. It does sound like he's especially good on clothing. You describe an excellent sequence in which a, a good-looking lad is dressed in one gay cliché outfit after the other from a leopard spotted loincloth to white tennis shorts to Tarzan <laughs> breeze cast aside. Right. I, I tried to show that uh, it, it, it's really like a collection of... Uh, of a period gay detail. Yeah, kind of lively pop culture references which kind of balance the nicely highbrow references of the rest of the text to Hausman and Rabelais and Keats and, and so on. I mean, uh, Mary McCarthy wrote the most famous essay at the time and she thought it was a brilliantly constructed and funny book, but she could only see the pedantic, scholarly humour and madness, really, of the book, but I do think that this gay theme is is staring us in the face, and there's there's a sense, isn't there, in in that the novel it, it's reacting against the the prevailing portrayals of gay men in that period. They were classically sort of in that period where they, they were portrayed as shameful outsiders, sort of struggling against them, them themselves for the most part. Whereas this is a 
this really contrasts with that because he's unapologetically, you know, lustfully, as you as you put it. <laughs> right. I, I I think that's part of the humor of it is mm. that I mean, if humor is based on shock, that is a shocking element. That it's so upfront about its. I mean, Ken Boat is so upfront about his desires. Do you think he's unusual in his ability to write about gay issues? Because you make the point in uh, in the rev- in the piece that his brother was gay. Of course, he was killed by the Nazis, uh, and his maternal uncle was also gay, Nabokov. So, do you think he was he was sort of sensitive to to the subject? He was able to empathise with a gay man more easily because he had a sort of family connection to he was he was familiar he was comfortable with with ideas of gay men i think in general he was uh, he wasn't very bourgeois in his morality and uh i mean he was an aristocrat uh, i don't mean to sound too snobbish but but i mean he did seem to go beyond normal scruples but i think in particular yes the fact that his brother was gay and was killed by the nazis and the fact that his uncle, whom he loved, had left him a huge fortune, which unfortunately he wasn't able to benefit from. But anyway, that uncle was gay as well. So I think it was very much part of his life. But I think he felt slightly uneasy about it because he he believed that homosexuality was genetically caused. And so I think he must have worried slightly that he was tainted somehow. But I think he dealt with that through humour. One of the things you say, which I think is re- really interesting, which connects with this, is that Nabokov had a rare capacity for imagining himself into the mind of an outsider, which is connected to this. The, the, he has this ability to look at the world or enable us to look at the world through someone who is part of it, but not quite part of it, a little bit set to one side of it. Uh, you see that throughout his fiction, really, don't you? Yes. I mean, I think he said once that I like to describe not the genus and not the uh, species, but the aberrant variety. And certainly almost all of his uh, heroes are odd ducks. You talk about this as well. He's the sort of master of the undermined autobiography, and the classic example is, is Humbert. Humbert sort of preening and praising himself, all the while being condemned out of his own mouth. And you refer to him playing with shadow lives all the time in his fiction, and it's the idea of putting people words into their mouths which they feel are expressing themselves in a, in a certain way, but all the while there's the arched eyebrow of the author behind them. Yes, I mean, I think that's certainly true. But he also likes to make fun of uh, middle-class fools and stuff shirts. So like, for instance, the introduction to Lolita by John, what I can't remember his name, he's a sociologist who says this book should be read, Lolita should be read by parents and policemen everywhere. Um, I wonder how many people get through Lolita without realising that, that she dies. That, that introduction at the state, it talks about Mrs. Richard F. Schiller uh, dying in childbirth. And people, I wonder, would get through all of Lolita without referring back to the start and realising that uh, the book starts with its heroine dead at the beginning. I wonder. But, I mean, of course, most people who read Lolita now probably read it in class or, I don't know, I mean, I think that The book commands very serious readers, so they read it in what they call the canonical fashion. That is, you read it as though you had already read it. (laughs) 
you know, I think people are expected to read it several times. Yeah, that's interesting. And where does Pale Fire start? Because it's interesting, though, because I, I would have thought Lolita is the one of his books that, that does that gets read more broadly than that. Where does Pale Fire stand in, in, in the Nabokov canon, do you think? Where, do, where does it fit? Oh, I think it's very high. He, he wrote it right after Lolita. And my, my own theory, which I think I mentioned, is that he was working on his scholarly edition of Eugene Onegin with this very labored, uh, deliberately labored translation that he did in three volumes of notes. And some of the notes are really absurd, like he'll say, Pushkin will refer to Rowanberries, and he'll say, Rowanberries, this will be... We had many of those on our estate at <laughs> such and such place. I mean, it, there's a kind of... Uh, crazy vanity and self-referentiality in, in his notes that I think he must have suddenly seen how absurd they were and that he could make a really funny novel out of that. And so he's sort of satirising himself in, 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 the, in the figure of Charles Kimboat. Well, you get, you get that very clear idea of one life or one, one story impinging on that of, of someone else. And so, you know, uh, Nabokov being a, being a master of, of the tension between the outside and the inside and the margin and, and the main textual event. So the fact that a whole, a whole life could be, because the, the notes that you're, that you're mentioning are very autobiographical, I think it kind, of, it kind of feeds into the whole idea of Pale Fire where you don't know definitively who the, you know, who the author is and whose story is the more important one. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I read it in a fairly traditional way that it really is a poem by John Shade, and it really is about John Shade's daughter's death, and that uh, Kenbo really was a neighbor and did steal the manuscript uh, and is now frantically holed up in a motel writing notes. I mean, I know some people have much more elaborate interpretations of the whole thing, but what about the author's own? What about the author's own suggestion uh, or instruction, even that it's Doctor Botkin all along? Oh uh, well, I think he liked to plant uh, little distracting <laughs> plums. Details. Plums, he called them, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Full of plums. I keep hoping somebody will find. <laughs> I think he's a very well armored writer. You know who was. And one of his techniques was to intimidate the reader, and especially the scholarly reader, who, by suggesting there are all these other interpretations, but I think that my interpretation, the flat-footed one, is the one that works the best. I'm sure that I'm sure that's probably right. And, and I think you sometimes have to rescue uh, authors like Nabokov from too much tricksiness mm. in the world. Exactly, yeah. Well, that is almost all we have time for this week. Thanks to Thea, to Edmund White, Thomas Meany and Amy Knight. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on all sorts of other things. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Paul Reiter on Carl Krause's vast anti-war play, Sarah Houston on Dancing in the Theatre, Ben Bollig on an Argentinian punk Shakespeare, that's right, Patrick McCock on Stuart Davis's Swing, Claire Wills on Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars, Adam Watt on how Clive James has tackled Proust, two different King Louis, you lucky things, the 14th and the 16th, and Lindsay Duguid on the Lake District. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at 
the TLS. And now we've just heard from him, we'll hear some more of the dulcet tones of Edmund White. He is reading from Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov, which we've just been discussing. Thea has her theories, Edmund White has his. It's a fictionalised, if you don't know it, it's a fictionalised presentation of a poem by John Shade, complete with a foreword and commentary by his colleague Charles Kinboat. The extract is taken from the foreword to the poem, where Kinboat describes his relationship with Shade. We never discussed, John Shade and I, any of my personal misfortunes. Our close friendship was on that higher, exclusively intellectual level where one can rest from emotional troubles, not share them. My admiration for him was for me a sort of alpine cure. I experienced a grand sense of wonder whenever I looked at him, especially in the presence of other people, inferior people. This wonder was enhanced by my awareness of their not feeling what I felt, of their not seeing what I saw, of their taking shade for granted instead of drenching every nerve, so to speak, in the romance of his presence. Here he is, I would say to myself, that is his head containing a brain of a different brand than that of the synthetic jellies preserved in the skulls around him. He's looking from the terrace of Professor C's house on that March evening at the distant lake. I am looking at him. I am witnessing a unique physiological phenomenon, John Shade perceiving and transforming the world, taking it in and taking it apart, recombining its elements in the very process of storing them up so as to produce at some unspecified date an organic miracle, a fusion of image and music, a line of verse. And I experienced the same thrill as when in my early boyhood I once watched across the tea table in my uncle's castle, a conjurer who had just given a fantastic performance and was now quietly consuming a vanilla ice. I stared at his powdered cheeks, at the magical flower in his buttonhole, where it had passed through a succession of different colours, and had now become fixed as a white carnation. Thank you so much for doing it. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Ed. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I do think there's something behind the story-snatching theory. I'm sticking by that. Trixie, though, it may be. Do you think? I do, I do. I quite like Edmund White's flat-footed approach to it. I, well, I like, I like both, but I think he said himself, Nabokov said himself, that the title of John Shade's poem is from, you know, Timon of Athens. Yeah. The moon is an arrant thief and her pale fire she snatches from the sun. When you look at the whole of Nabokov and his kind of his wider use of parallel lives and doppelgangers, and there's always that implicit question of which is the first, which is the most worthy of our attention, and he's always subverting that. Was it, is it reality? Is it delusion? Is it, is it King Charles's account, the colourful account, or is it the more sombre one of, of, of the poet John Shade? Or then is it the silent story of Jack Grey, the escaped madman who, who kills Shade? Even Shade's daughter is called Hazel, and 
you know, that's that's about the in between. It's not one colour or the other. It's a yeah, it's an in between. It's all about plumbing the greys. Yeah, and, and shade by that. and shade. I, I, Shades I, I, of grey. <laughs> is there not the, the the slight chance that he does that deliberately? Of course he to does. Make, oh, to of make, course to make he's manipulating. That. And actually, it's just a. a Story about a man writing a poem and a fictionalised academic writing oh, about the poem as well. And then he in, would obviously relish how tied up in knots we all get. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.